Matthew chapter 11, verses 16 to 24. Beginning in verse 16. But to what shall I liken this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their companions and saying, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We mourned for you, and you did not lament. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by her children. Then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe unto you, Chorazin! Woe unto you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Father, we ask that you would open our hearts to your truth this morning. Be with us as we examine this passage together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord expected people to respond to his message. That's the whole purpose of giving a message, is to expect a response in return. And we've seen throughout the Gospel of Matthew in chapters 1 through 10, basically, Jesus, Matthew is documenting the credibility that Christ had. He's pointing all the evidence to Christ that he is the Messiah, he is the Son of God, he is the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings. He is exactly who he claimed to be. And it's almost as if he lined up all these witnesses in a courtroom and said, here, tell them about Christ. And now in chapters 11 and 12, Christ demands a response from what truth they've been exposed to. That's why he says there in verse 15, we looked at this last week, he who has ears, let him hear. It's an interesting little phrase. It's not only here in Matthew, but it's used other places. But whenever the revelation of God is given, God always has a response in mind. The Lord wants us to respond properly to what he says. And when we heard and we're taught about John the Baptist, you remember the Lord is calling on people not only to listen to him, but to listen to John the Baptist as well. And so our Lord calls for them to hear the gospel message. And while he does that, he does recognize that some people are not going to hear. Just like today. When you share the gospel with people, some people listen, some people don't. It's basic to biblical truth, though, that men must respond. That men must react. That men are given a choice when confronted with the truth of God. That's very clear. And the choice is this. You either hear it, you believe it, and you act upon it, or you simply reject it. 
That's the choice that is before us. And so by the time we come to chapter 11, we have 10 chapters of the message of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Matthew is continually over and over and over again exposing who Christ is. And he, re- he records various responses to that message. We've already looked at one. Honest doubt. John the Baptist, greatest prophet who ever lived, had honest doubt. And he's going to go on to some other responses that are very serious. He's going to talk about rejection. He's going to talk about a superficial kind of amazement that people had with Christ. They're going to talk, he's going to talk about a fascination that's kind of superficial as well. And then in chapter 12, he even gets into the reaction of blasphemy. But in our section today, we're going to look at two responses to Christ's message that was very common. The first one is criticism. The second is indifference. Criticism and indifference, they go together. And yet they're different. One talks about what men do, criticism. They criticize. One talks about what men don't do, indifference. Because you have to understand, a man or a woman can be damned to hell just as much by what they do as by what they don't do. And when you look ahead at the ultimate great white throne judgment, it's certain that some people are going to say in their defense when they stand before Christ, I didn't do anything, Lord. (laughs) And that's going to be their condemnation. They didn't do anything with the truth that was revealed to them. And so in a real sense, this is a very critical portion of Matthew's gospel. And so he calls people to believe. He calls people to hear with faith in verse 15. It's the same phrase there he uses in Revelation when he's talking to the churches. He who has ears, let him hear. Let him respond to what he's hearing. But this generation, the generation that the Lord is dealing with right here, would not hear. And so he poses a question to them in verse 16. Look at what it says. It says, but to what shall I liken this generation? But to what shall I liken this generation? The majority of them were not interested in listening to Jesus Christ. Even though his miracles were beyond question, convincing them that he was from God, they wouldn't hear him. And so he says, what, can I, what parallel can I draw here to illustrate this? And he launches into these two chapters here, 11 and 12, where he talks about negative ways that people respond. And the first one we want to talk about this morning is criticism. Criticism. See, one of the things that characterized them was that they were just critical. The generation which Jesus dealt with, they were just critical. No matter what he did, no matter what what he said, they just criticized it. And there was really even not even any validity in their criticism. They were just looking for something to pick on. 
And you know, there's people like that today. My wife always tells me, oh, you're just too critical. You don't ever want to watch a movie with me. Okay, you don't want to ever watch anything with me, but because you know, I just kind of I sit there, oh yeah, right, this is really going to happen. You know, it's just not fun if you, if you like to do that. I just look at things through that lens. But these folks, no matter what the message was, no matter what was said or was done by the, by the church or those who represent Christ, even today, we still have people who all they're going to do is they're just going to criticize it because that's all they know to do. They have a critical spirit. They don't seek truth. They're not open to truth. They're not willing to acknowledge their sin before a holy God. They're not interested in a Savior because they don't think they need one. They think it's a crutch. They think it's something else. So they just sit back and they criticize those who have put their faith or trust in Christ. Now back to the phrase there in verse 16 for a moment. He says, but to what shall I liken this generation? This is a very common phrase used in Jewish literature. And any good teacher knows that when you teach, you have to give certain illustrations. You have to give people little windows to, to kind of apply the truth and, and draw a conclusion. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He asks a question and he says, you know what, I'm going to show you what this generation is like. I'm going to give you a parable. I'm going to give you a story that represents a spiritual truth. And they would do that back in his days. The rabbis would do it. And so he says, how can I liken this? Generation. What, what parallel can I draw here? How can I illustrate this generation to you so you'll clearly understand what I'm talking about? And look at what he says in verse 16 there. He gives us the answer to his own question. He says, it's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling on their companions and saying, we played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We mourned to you, and you did not lament. Now stop there for a second. I don't know about you, but I read that thing over and over and over weeks ago, because I'm thinking, okay, I'm kind of working ahead, and I'm like, what am I going to preach on this? I just thought, this is kind of hard. What is he talking about? You played the flute, and you didn't dance? You mourned, and you didn't lament? What in the world is he talking about? And it's very interesting when you study it out. And at first you read that and you might say the same thing. What in the world is he talking about? What he's doing is he's giving them a picture. He's giving them an illustration. Back in Jesus' day, even as we have today, there were towns, small towns, cities even, that would have open marketplaces. You can go down here on Saturday morning down to Redwood City there by the, the city hall. And there's an open market, a farmer's market. And they have booths set up and people sell you know, food and all sorts of things. And then you have across the street there, the city hall, and sometimes they'll have concerts out there. And it's kind of a public place. Well, that's what they had back in Jesus' time. It was called the Agora, the marketplace. And what would happen is the, the families on certain days, they, this market would be open, and they'd bring everything that they had, their fruits or vegetables or things to sell or buy or whatever, and they'd all set up booths. And while they were setting up booths and everything and tending to their, their own wares and selling them and, and buying things, they brought their children along. And their children, like any kids, would get together and they would start to play in the marketplace. They would start to, you know, get together and, and, and kind of, you know, kind of follow each other around. And, and eventually, they would come up with games. 
Kids are that way. I know when I go back to visit the grandkids, you know, they'll be in the other room and you hear them talking and it's like, what are they doing? So you yell in there, Mason, Sophia, what are you guys doing in there? Oh, we're playing a game. So what game are you playing? We're playing family, Grandpa. You're playing family? What's that? Oh, well, Mason's the dad, I'm the mom, and Gabby's the dog. It's like, go figure. And sometimes Mason's the dog, and Gabby... I mean, it's just weird, but that's what they play. They play family. Why? Because they see their mom and dad having a family, playing family all the time. And it's a game to them. It wasn't different back in Jesus' day. The, 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 the children of Jesus' day, in their, their social environment, they would see certain things going on out in public. And one of those things was weddings. And that was a game they would play. They would play the game of wedding. And so while their parents are selling their things or whatever, they would go through the marketplace and they'd get the kids together and say, okay, we're going to play wedding. Who wants to be the bride? Okay, here, you're the lucky girl. Okay, you're the groom. Great, the rest of you are the family. Who's got the flute? Who's got the harp? Okay, let's get in the line because that's what they would do socially in Jesus' day. When, when there was a wedding, it was a big event. I mean, everybody came to the wedding. And the bride and the groom and the family would march through the town and everybody would be singing and dancing. Very joyous event. And they'd play that game for a little while because that's what they saw all their parents doing. And then they'd move on to the funeral game, which is just as likely to happen as the wedding game. But they play the funeral game. Why? Because they saw that as a public thing that was happening. When someone died in Jesus' day, they just didn't have a private little viewing somewhere. No. The whole town came together and they'd take the body of the deceased and they'd lift it up and they'd go through the town and they'd hire people that would come to the funeral and they would wail. They're professional wailers. And they would scream and they would beat themselves. And the, the richer you were, the more people you had to attend the funeral. And the longer the wailing would go on. And so they saw that, and they'd see them putting ashes on their head. And the kids saw that, so they'd play the game of wedding for a while, and then they'd move on and they'd play the game of funeral. They'd probably dress some kid up and, you know, put him on a board and pick him up, and, and the rest of them would put on some kind of a sackcloth or black cloth. That's what they'd wear to funerals in that day. And see, that's what he's talking about here. He's giving them a parable. He's giving them an illustration of what this generation is like. Like kids in a courtyard and some are playing the game, but you know what? Whenever you get kids together to play, there's always some kids that are kind of on the peripheral, aren't they? There's always some kids that don't want to play. You know, you remember the cartoon of Rudolph, you know, I mean, all the reindeer games, the poor Rudolph was left out. That's kind of what it was like. But in this case, they're being left out by their own accord. It's their choice not to participate in these games. So you picture these kids going through the, the courtyard saying, hey, come on, we're going to play wedding. And there's some kids going, I'm not going to play your stupid game. I don't want to play your stupid game. And then there was other people. You know, they, they, they try to get them involved. They couldn't get the kids involved. They, I don't want to play. Okay, well, if you don't want to play wedding, let's play funeral. Come on, you can play funeral with it. No, I, I'm not playing that game either. It's stupid. They didn't want to play, no matter what the game was. 
See, that's why verse 17 says, we piped and you didn't dance. Hey, we're celebrating a wedding. We're playing the game of wedding and you're not participating. And then it says, we mourned and you didn't strike yourselves. In other words, you didn't want to play that game either. You're just spoiled sports. You just want to sit on the sidelines and watch the game go by. You don't like to play the wedding game. You don't like to play the funeral game. That's painting the opposite of extremes. They don't want to be involved in anything. The sad game is the opposite of the glad game, but they're not going to play either game. They don't care. They just stubbornly will not play. That's the illustration that Jesus is giving them here. They just want to sit on the sidelines and criticize. Now the principle here in this parable is very clear. There are some people who just don't want to play no matter what the game is. No matter how hard you try to get them involved, it's not, no, I'm not going to do it. No matter how you approach them, they don't want to play. They're going to criticize the wedding game just as like they're going to criticize the funeral game. Nothing satisfies them. They're always going to find fault. They're basically unwilling to participate. They're unwilling to be satisfied with anything. And so Jesus says, that's what this generation is like. You just don't want to play, period. No matter what the game is. You're like the children when called by their little friends to come and play. You just sit back and you're bitter and you're critical and you're contrary in spirit and you, you, don't, you don't want to be involved. Now look at verse 18, because here comes the application. Now that you understand what that parable is all about, here's how Jesus applies it. Look at what he says in verse 18. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. In other words, what Jesus is saying, John came in funeral mode. <laughs> he came in funeral mode. He came in a serious way. John came dressed in what? We learned about this last week. Camel's hair, which would have been black, heavy, kind of rough. He ate locusts and honey out in the wilderness somewhere. He had no normal social relationships at all. He lived in the desert. I mean, we would call him today a recluse or a hermit. But he came pounding away the message of judgment and fiery condemnation. That was his message. He talked about things like the axe chopping at the root of the tree. He cried out to those who were following him, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And not only that, but bring forth fruit worthy of repentance in Matthew 3. So he came in a very serious funeral atmosphere. He lived apart from the normal relationships of life. He never entered into the social, everyday things that people were involved in. The Bible says that he was what? A voice crying where? In the wilderness. And so they looked at him and they said, you know what? He's got a demon. He's possessed. Anybody that acts like that's got to be weird. And rather than just saying he's a little out of his mind, they took it to the furthest extreme. Because in Jesus' day, when someone was out of their mind, usually it was a result of demon possession. And I think maybe that may be true today in a lot of our mental institutions. There's poor people in there who are dealing with a spiritual matter, matter, but you know, the medical and psychological community just said, oh, they're you know, 5150, they're crazy. 
And maybe Satan has a real hold or a demon or something has a hold in their life, but that's never addressed because we live in a secular society today. And so they just said, that guy's weird. He must have a demon. And it's interesting because at first they flocked to him. At first, man, they rejoiced in his presence for a while, the presence of John the Baptist, because they hadn't had any fresh truth from God for 400 years. You have to understand, when John the Baptist came on the scene, he was the first prophet they had in 400 years. That means everybody who was alive during the time of John the Baptist never heard a prophet of God. If you do the math, people didn't live 400 years old. And so they were excited at first, but then when he started preaching, it wasn't the message they wanted to hear. And the Bible says that he was the absolute greatest prophet up until that time. He was without equal. He had a power of a personality to attract people. And they liked him for a season. But then they basically, the critical people were sat by and said, that guy's just plain nuts. He must have a demon. Because that's what they thought demon-possessed people did. Just by their experience. They just ridiculed him. They said, ah, this guy's crazy. What's the other extreme? Look at what he says in verse 19. He says, the son of man, which is interesting because that's the, the, the human title for Jesus. It speaks of his humanity here. It says, the son of man came eating and drinking. And what do they say about him? Well, what's eating and drinking represent? Eating and drinking represents wedding mode. He came in celebration. Poor John came in the funeral mode, you know, just this dirge of repentance and fiery condemnation from God. Was out in the wilderness. Jesus came, it says, eating and drinking. He spent time with the people. And look at what they said about that. They said, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You see the illustration Jesus is giving him? In other words, he was the opposite of John. John came in funeral mode. Jesus came in wedding mode. He got into the flow of social life. He came out and he had meals with the people. He went to weddings. He went to funerals. He went to all special events. He was in the synagogue. He was in the temple. He walked from village to village to village with his folks. He was by the sea with the fishermen. He was in the boat. And he was part of their life. He shared food and drink with them. He came in wedding mode. As a matter of fact, remember when we looked at chapter 9 of Matthew, the disciples of John, who were used to this funeral mode with John, you know, just always, boy, you know, we got to fast, we got to do all this stuff. Well, they came to the disciples of Jesus, the Bible says, and says, hey, why don't you guys fast like we fast? Remember that? The disciples of John went to the disciples of Jesus, and they were saying, why don't you guys fast like we fast? And, and their answer was simple. Hey, you know what? You don't fast at a wedding. Have you ever gone to a wedding and fasted? No. A wedding is for celebration. And the answer is, Jesus was saying, the Messiah is here. You don't want to fast now. This isn't a funeral. And they, they couldn't get that. 
And so they clearly understood that John came in this funeral mode, whereas Jesus came in this celebratory wedding mode. And so the Lord, in a sense, came in a very different way than what John did. And here's what they said about him. They called John crazy and basically said that he was demon-possessed. Well, here's what they said about Jesus. They said, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber. A glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. See, because he mingled with the people... Well, they criticized that. They criticized John because he didn't mingle. But then Jesus comes along and he's down there with the everyday person and he mingles with them and they criticize that. That phrase, gluttonous man, is an interesting word. In the original Greek, it's anthropos phagos. And it's a, it's a term that really, it doesn't have any dignity at all. It's a nondescript term. It, it's basically, he was just a glutton of a person. In other words, they describe Jesus basically as someone who just sat around and ate in excess. Just constantly shoving food in his mouth. That's really what that means. Didn't do anything, just sat around and shoved food down his throat. And then they said on top of that, he's a wine bibber. Which simply means, uh, when he wasn't eating, he was just drinking. <laughs> I mean, basically, they were just saying, no, Jesus is just a big fat slob. All he did is sit around and eat and drink. That's how we would translate that today. As far as a side note here, it's interesting to know that the Lord did drink wine, but it was wine that was mixed with water. One commentator says this, the kind of wine that Jesus drank would stimulate, stimulate about as much as our tea or coffee. So just for a footnote, you're not talking about the kind of alcohol we have today here. All right? Totally different ballgame. But they said basically he's a drunkard and a glutton. And beyond that, they said, look at who he hangs out with. These publicans, these tax collectors, these sinners. They're his friends. Can you believe it? And so he came mixing with all the people who were hurting because that's where his heart was. He wanted to reach out to the needy. He wanted to share in their sorrows and share in their joy. He wanted to meet their needs. And they basically criticized that. John came living in the desert, not having anything to do with anybody, basically, fasting, despising food, isolated from people, and they criticized that. See, and the point of this whole illustration that Jesus is trying to get across, well, you don't want to know what the generation is like? Well, the generation is critical. That's what they are. They're critical. There is nothing that could be done that could please them. William Barclay says this, The plain fact that is when people do not want to listen to the truth, they will easily find enough an excuse for not listening. They do not even try to be consistent in their criticism. They'll criticize the same person and the same institution from quite opposite grounds and reasons. If people are determined to make no response, they will remain stubbornly and sullenly unresponsive no matter what invitation is made to them. End quote. And so our Lord points out that no matter what they did, you just wouldn't play the game. You were going to be contrary, you were going to be critical in your heart, and that's a bad response to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why he says at the end of verse 19, he says, wisdom is justified 
the, the New King James says children, the better reading of that is by her works. The best rendering for that word is works. Wisdom is justified by her works. In other words, you sit back and you criticize no matter what John does, and you sit back and you, you're critical of what Jesus does, no matter what our message is, you criticize it. And what Jesus is saying here is, but in the end, you know what's going to happen? The truth will justify itself by what it produces. That's what he's saying. You can criticize Christ all you want, but what are you going to do when you talk to somebody whose life has been transformed by the power of God through Christ? What, what is your answer to that? When you see somebody who was enslaved to alcohol and now they're free of it, or enslaved to drugs and now they're free of it, or their, their family was in disarray and because of Christ things are put back together, how do you argue with that? Truth will justify, be justified it, in the end by what it produces. You can criticize the church all you want, but what do you do about all the good that the church has done? The wisdom of John the Baptist insisted on repentance. The wisdom of Jesus insisted on salvation. And all that was shown to be justified by what it accomplished in the hearts of the people who believed in them. They rendered the right verdict. They looked at the evidence and they said, no, this is right. I, I, we need to believe it. We believe that Jesus is the Messiah. We're going to commit our lives to him. And then, in turn, they become a testimony to the truth. But some people are just playing critical. They're not even looking for truth. They just want to find everything that's wrong with Christ, everything that's wrong with Christianity, and that's, unfortunately, beloved, a tragic response. Because in the end, the truth will be justified by what it produces. And these people kind of have a self-righteous smugness about themselves, and they sit back and they, they, they almost sit in condemning judgment. And Jesus is saying that's wrong. Now, in these verses, these first 16 through 19, I mean, he's kind of getting in their face a little bit, just a little bit. And he uses kind of the illustration there at the end, you know, wisdom is justified by her works, kind of pointing the finger at them. But you should draw a line after verse 19, in between verse 19 and 20, because something dramatically changes here. All the gentleness is gone. <laughs> It's like Jesus is saying, okay, now I'm taking the gloves off, pal. There's a, there's a line of demarcation between those two verses. And this will even accelerate the events that lead people to crucify Christ. Because he's about to say some things that are mind-blowing to the Jews of his day. But something changes and judgment begins to be unraveled with fury in verse 20. There's an open flow of the wrath of God in this next section. And so we see the response of criticism, what men did. What they do, they criticized. And that can damn you to hell just as quickly as what you don't do. That's the next response, the response of indifference. What men didn't do. It's important to realize that what people don't do is enough to condemn them. In Matthew 7, 26, Jesus said, The man who hears my words 
and does them not is like unto a man who builds his house in the sand and the rains and the floods came. And you remember what happened when we went through that? Great was what? The fall thereof. Why was that man lost in judgment? Because he heard and he didn't do. He was exposed to the word of God. He was exposed to the truth of God. They were exposed to the gospel. They didn't respond. And so just doing it was sufficient. They didn't do anything. People don't have to do something to go to hell. They just have to do nothing. Back in 2 Kings 22, 13, the story of Josiah's revival, he brought the word of God back to the people of God. And he said in 22, 13, 2 Kings, he said, Great is the wrath of our Lord that is kindled against us. And you say, why was God's wrath kindled against us? Why would God be so wrathful? And he tells us, because our fathers have not listened to the words of this book. It was what they didn't do. They heard it. But they didn't respond to it. You can hear things, but not really listen to things. Right? Husbands and wives, we know that all too well. Are you listening to me? I, I'm hearing everything. No, are you listening to me? Well, yeah, let me pause this here. Now I can listen to you, okay? We know that. In Matthew 22, even, the Lord likens his kingdom to a wedding. And sinners are being called to the marriage feast and this is what he says. He says, tell them which are bidden, behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatlings are killed and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage feast. And look at what verse 5 says of Matthew 22. It says, but they made light of it. They treated it lightly. They looked at his invitation to this feast and said, ah, you know what? What they said is they went on to their own farm and the another one went on to their own merchandise. In other words, what did they do? They went on with life as usual. They didn't respond to the invitation. Even over in Luke 17, 26, very interesting parallel passage here, it says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it shall be in the days of the Son of Man. And you say, well, what's the parallel there? Well, stop and think about it. In those days, what were they doing? They were eating, they were drinking, marrying, all these things. And then Noah came by and he started building this ark and warned people about it. And what did people do? Well, you had critical people that would come out in the field and they'd look at Noah and say, look at this quack. You know, he's building this giant boat. He says it's going to rain. What is rain? It never rained before. They didn't know what rain was. Water's going to come out of the sky. Yeah, right. So they were critical. But you also had people who were just indifferent. They just went on with life as usual, doing what they do, eating, drinking, getting married. Yeah, that guy's building a boat out there, so what? Who cares? No response at all. Stuck in the same routine. Until the rain came, and the floods came, and the door was shut. And then they were crying out, but it was too late. See, those passages illustrate indifference toward God of men. But here in verse 20 is even a better illustration for us. Verse 20, it says, Then he began to rebuke the cities. It means to speak condemnation against. Well, which cities did he speak condemnation against? It says, 
the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. See, the gentleness of verse 19 is all gone now. Jesus took the gloves off and he's like, okay, I'm going to tell you the truth just you know, man to man here. They've had 10 chapters of Revelation. They've had the fullness of the Galilean ministry, all the miracles that Christ did in their midst. He banished basically disease from Palestine. They'd seen enough. They'd seen him forgive sin. They saw him cast out demons. They saw him raise the dead. You name it, they saw it. And they still hadn't repented. They still hadn't turned their hearts to God. And so he moves to a statement of judgment against them. It's the wrath of the Lamb. And you have to understand, as gracious as the Son of God is in his friendship with sinners, so much more, so fierce is he in the denunciation of those who will not acknowledge their sin. It's holy anger. It's holy fury. That's what we see here. And he begins to mention these cities in which these mighty works of Jesus were done. These were all Galilean cities. That's where the, his ministry took place. Now the city, when it says city, it doesn't necessarily refer to the streets and the buildings. However, that's part of it. Because cities and or buildings and streets can't repent. He's referring to the people who live in those cities. Even though, ultimately, when the judgment of God fell on those cities, it fell on the physical buildings. If you go over there today and you look at these cities, we're going to talk about this a little bit, there's nothing there. They're wiped out. But here he's talking about the people. See, and the reason he began to condemn them was because of all the mighty works that were done in their presence, and they still didn't repent. That word, mighty works, we... In the, in the original language, dunamis, we get the word dynamite from it. I mean, we're talking about some super, super power here. Mighty works of miraculous power would be a good translation. And they had seen miracle after miracle after miracle by the hundreds, maybe even the thousands. And they still would not repent. They wouldn't turn to God. We see that in Revelation 9, 20 and 21 after a bunch of miracles that occur in the tribulation. You have people who still curse God and they still will not repent. They show no interest at all. And so the Lord is bringing this to their attention through these illustrations of these cities. It's important to understand when men have the kind of privilege that they did, and they don't repent, their guilt becomes even more. It's more severe. It's more aggravated. If someone who had never seen a miracle, it's far better if you know nothing at all about Jesus Christ than to know something about him and reject him. You have to understand that. There's a greater punishment. Hebrews 10.26 says this. To the one who knows of Jesus Christ and tramples his blood under his feet. Much more so than the person who never even heard about Jesus. So this morning, and I say this in love, but I say it. If you're openly rejecting Jesus Christ, if you're willfully saying, I don't have anything to do with this. 
It'd be best if you run as far away as you can from this place and as far away from any place that would speak anything about Jesus. Because you're just aggravating, you're just deepening your own eternal punishment in the pit of hell. Because as you are ex exposed to biblical truth, with that greater privilege, there's greater responsibility. And the question is, what are you doing with the truth you're hearing week after week after week? See, no cities were more privileged than these cities in Galilee. I mean, the, the Son of God walked in their, their streets and on their roads. He taught the people there. He ate, he drank with them, he performed miracles with them. Overwhelming evidence that pointed to who he was, and yet they were indifferent. They wouldn't repent. One commentator said this, Every hearer of New Testament truth is either much happier or much more wretched than the men who lived before Christ's coming. See, the works that Jesus did should have stopped those people in their tracks. Like the works and message of Jonah did to Nineveh, remember? It stopped them in their tracks and they repented. That's what should have happened here, but it didn't. They just dug their heels in more. They didn't repent. It's in the aorist tense. It marks the idea that it's, it's final. They would not repent. And so he singles out two illustrations here of unrepentant hearts, and he gives us illustrations of these cities in Galilee. The first one in verse 21 and 22. He says, Woe unto you, Chorazin. Woe unto you, Beth Bethsaida. When he says, woe, that means, you know what? Here comes the promise of doom. Here comes the promise of judgment. This isn't a joke. This isn't, you know, a happy little parable. I'm promising you this is what is coming down the pike. Now, Corazon was this little village. It's nestled in the hills about two and a half miles north of Capernaum on the northern Sea of Galilee. And so two and a half miles north of Capernaum is this little village of Chorazin. And by the way, if you go over there now, it's not even there. It's, it's extinct. <laughs> and then there's this other city he names, Bethsaida. And these are only examples. These are only two examples of the many villages and cities he did miracles in. He's just using this as an illustration. And Bethsaida is a little little more north and a little toward the west, out on the plain of Gennesaret, above the Sea of Galilee. It was a hometown of Philip, which you might find interesting. It's the place where Andrew and Peter originally came from. And he did a bunch of miracles there in that little village. And then he mentions Capernaum. And Capernaum was the headquarters of Christ's ministry, basically. And, and those miracles spread out from there. In John's Gospel, it says that all the things that Jesus did are not even written here. In another place, in the Word of God, John 21, 25, it says, if you could write down all the things that Jesus did, if you could do that, you couldn't find enough books that could hold all the things that Jesus did. So you're talking about myriads and myriads and myriads of miracles. Evidence after evidence was given to these cities. And it wasn't by word of mouth. They physically saw Christ doing these things. They had the blessed Savior with them. And look at what he says. He says, For if the mighty works 
which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in in, in sackcloth and ashes. I mean, at this point, his hearers would have begun to tremble. They wouldn't have known how to respond to what Jesus just told them. Because in the minds of a Galilean Jew, the two most wretched cities ever in that area were Tyre and Sidon. They looked at them as disdainful. They just thought, oh, horrible places. They were pagan cities. They were basically cities of the Phoenicians, which were seafaring people. And so you had the sailor kind of impact there. You had these sailors going out for months, maybe years away, and they'd come into port, and all this immorality and fornication would go on. There were, there were places of Baal worship in these two cities. I mean, they were just as immoral as you can imagine. And to the Jew of Jesus' day, they would look at them and just say, oh yeah, God should judge those cities. They deserve it. They're horrible out there. They're pagans. They're they're heathen societies. The Old Testament prophets always condemned them. Joel tells us that they sold the Israelites to the Greeks as slaves. And so the prophets denounced all this wretchedness that they saw there. That's why God destroyed them ultimately. And so the Lord says this with the jolt and, and just, he says, if, if these works would have been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented. And then he says, in sackcloth and ashes. In other words, you are worse than they are. That's what he's telling them. And they're just going, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, their ears are going into dissonance at this point. They don't know what to do. Because you have this smug, self-righteous, moral, Jewish society that's going about their daily routine, you know, eating, drinking, none of this grossness that's out in Tyre, none of the immorality, all that stuff, probably some of that, but not to the extent of Tyre and Sidon. And he says, you know what, you're worse off than these other two cities. They were unable to perceive that God was in their midst. And he says that Tyre and Sidon would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. And that means that it would have been a genuine repentance. If they would have been exposed to the same miracles you folks would have been exposed to, they would have genuinely repented. That's what you would do when you would repent. You'd put sackcloth on and you'd dump ashes on your head. It's a way of showing humility. It's a way of showing that you're mourning. It's a way of expressing your sorrow. That's what Job did. He repented in dust and ashes. And so he's saying here that Tyre and Sidon would have genuinely repented if they saw what you saw. But Tyre and Sidon didn't have your privilege. They weren't able to see it because Christ wasn't there in their day. And for a Jew to be told that he is worse than a Gentile, (laughs) I mean, that's the end of the conversation right there. And you can see how this would begin to accelerate the Jewish sentiment against Jesus. He began to tell them some things he took the gloves off, and they just didn't like what they were hearing. And look at what he says. If that's not bad enough, look at what he says in verse 22. He continues. He says, But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. What's the day of judgment he's speaking of? Well, it could be any day. But here I think he has in mind the great white throne final judgment where all the dead of the ages are brought before the throne of God to be judged for their eternal punishment. 
And he says here, basically, in a nutshell, what he's saying is Chorazin and Bethsaida will be, the judgment against you will be more severe than the judgment against these cities that you just think is horrendous. That's inconceivable for them to understand. Because the Jews would have agreed that Tyre and Sidon deserve God's judgment. They would have said, yeah, they're a horrible place out there. And Jesus is coming along saying, yeah, well, you're worse off than they are, pal. And what that tells us as well is it tells us that there's degrees of punishment in hell. There's degrees of punishment in hell, beloved. The severer hell belongs to those who had Jesus Christ in their midst and walked away from him. A lot worse off than most of the immoral people who didn't even know who Christ was. See, they, they, they thought themselves pretty good. They're the seed of Abraham. They're the Jewish nation, all this stuff. So they thought themselves pretty good. But when he began to say this stuff to them, I mean, it just blew the top of their head right off. And he says it's going to be more tolerable for them than it will be for you. I mean, all hell is bad. All hell is utter darkness. But you know what? It, it, it goes from bad to worse. And the Bible speaks of that. We don't have time to go into all that this morning, but the Bible does speak of that. The second illustration he gives here, not only Chorazin and, and Bethsaida, but he says in verse 23, he says, And you, Capernaum, my version says, who are exalted to heaven? That's really a question. Are you exalted to heaven? In the original language, it's really posed as a question. And then he says, we'll be brought down to Hades or hell. I mean, what a statement. What's he saying? He's saying, well, Capernaum, out of these three examples... Capernaum is the most guilty because they had the most information given to them because that's the headquarters, basically, of, of Jesus' miraculous ministry. And there's ruins there even today. Rolls right down to the, the Sea of Galilee. A little fishing village. And that's where the Lord made his home during his Galilean ministry. That's where he healed the nobleman's son. That's where he healed the demoniac in the, the synagogue. That's where he healed Peter's mother-in-law. That's where a multitude of miracles were done. Remember the paralytic that was carried through the roof. That's where that happened. Jairus' daughter. The woman with the issue of blood. You can go on and on. The two blind men, the dumb demoniac, the centurion's servant. All those things happened in Capernaum. See, and they had this illusion that they were just flourishing and they were just so self-righteous and prosperous that they were just going to be exalted to heaven. <laughs> they were so self-righteous. They were so religious. That's what they thought. And so he poses the question, you think you're going to be exalted to, to heaven? He says, no, you're going, to, you're going to be brought down to hell. Literally, in the Greek, it says, to hell you shall go. That's what it says. That's probably where that modern day phrase comes when it's used in a derogatory sense. That's probably where it came from. But in this case, it was proper. They had a, they had a lofty view of themselves, but it wasn't correct. 
And it would be so much more than just the temporal destruction of these cities physically. I mean, that was bad enough. You go over there and there's nothing there. I mean, there's some ruins and, you know, you can poke around and see some different things, but there's literally, there's, there's no city there. Just ruins. And God carried out His judgment, just like He said He was going to. But that's not the severest judgment that He's talking about here. The severity of the judgment is that someday the people who lived in these cities, who saw all these miracles and were given all this evidence of Christ they will be judged to be eternally sentenced to hell. They're already in a place of torment even now. And their sentence will be more severe than some of these cities who were immoral. That's what he says in verse 22. He continues down. He says, For if the mighty works, in verse 23 there, which were done in you had been done, look at what he says, in Sodom. I mean, if you ask people today, what's the worst, the most vilest city in the United States? Some people may say, oh, it's Vegas or Palm Springs or San Francisco. Well, back then, if you asked that question, they would say Sodom. <laughs> and even today, if you ask, what's the worst city that there ever was in the history of mankind? Most biblical literate people would say, oh, Sodom and Gomorrah, without a doubt. I mean, to the Jews, Sodom was the worst. Sodom was the city that God wouldn't visit. God and two angels visited Abraham, but when the two angels showed up at Sodom, God wasn't there. I mean, this is a city that was basically populated by a whole group of homosexuals who tried to rape angels. And then when God struck them blind, they continue to try to fulfill their lust. Sodom was the city that was the worst. Do you know what? You've got to revise your list. Because what's worse than Sodom? Jesus is saying Capernaum. Capernaum is worse than Sodom. Did they have a homosexual problem there in Capernaum? Not that we know of. I'm sure they had homosexuals there like any community does. But it definitely wasn't like Sodom. Did they attack God's people? No, there's no evidence of that. They just ignored Jesus. But that brings the deepest damnation. And so he says to Capernaum, you're going to be brought down to hell. There's three Greek words in the New Testament that speak of hell. Hades, which is used here, refers to a temporal abode of the dead or, or just basically the grave or the pit. It's kind of a neutral, nondescript turn. There's Gehenna, which refers to the final abode of the, of the wicked dead. It's used about 12 times. And there's one other word, Tartarus, that's used in, I think it's in 1 Peter, that talks about the, um, the prison for the, the fallen angels. That's only used one time. But hell is a very real place. It's not a make-believe place. It's a very real place. And here it has the idea of torment. It's not just a grave that your body gets eaten by the worms. No, this is a place where it says your body burns, but it's never consumed. Utter darkness, gnashing of teeth. Horrible place. Stench. I mean, it's the most disgusting place ever. A million fold. 
Hell is a very real place. And that word here reflects torment. And what Jesus is telling them is, you know what, Capernaum, you think you're so self-righteous, you think you're just going to be exalted to heaven, you're going to go right to hell because of your rejection of who Christ is. And your punishment is even going to exceed the punishment and the torment of those who lived in Sodom, the worst possible city ever. It's going to be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Now, I don't know what these people did at this point. Because they must have, their faces must just have flushed out. I mean, they, they probably didn't know what to, even how to respond to this. Capernaum exceeded Chorazin and Bethsaida in privilege. Sodom exceeded Tyre and Sidon in wickedness. And so he's drawing the, the ultimate contrast here for us. The most wretched city in history against the most blessed city in history. The one that was given the most evidence about Christ is going to end up being the most tormented in the end. Because they didn't do, they didn't respond to the evidence that was given to them. See, you have to understand this. You cannot play around with Jesus Christ and think it's just kind of a big game. It's not a game. When you're given truth about who Christ is and about your sin and about how you need to repent of your sin and come to Christ, this is not a religious game that we're playing here. It's very serious. And it has eternal consequences. It says that Sodom would have repented if they had the information that Capernaum had. If they would have seen the miracles that Capernaum they would have repented. As, as far down in the pit as they were, they would have had a change of heart. You know what the sin of all sins is? You know what the sin that blinded these people of Capernaum, the people that were blessed with the presence of the ministry of the Lord? The ultimate sin really is, is the sin that, that you think that you're already, you're already righteous. You're already good enough. I mean, at least the most rotten, vilest sinner knows that he needs a Savior. But self-righteous people, they can't admit it. And they're setting themselves up for the most severe judgment. See, that's why throughout the New Testament we see the Lord Jesus Christ forgiving harlots, forgiving prostitutes. Why? Because they came before him with a broken heart. They came before him out of need. They knew that they weren't good. They knew that they weren't self-righteous. And yet, on the other hand, we see him blast the self-righteous religious people of his day. Because they had no need for him. See, the first step to salvation, beloved, is understanding that you need to be saved. You can't be saved if you don't think you need to be saved. Why would you put your, your trust in a Savior if you, if, you, if you don't think you need one? I mean, how could Capernaum be worse? How could they be worse than Sodom of all places. They never hated Jesus. They never rioted against Jesus. They never persecuted Jesus. They never had any riot or anything like we read in Nazareth or Jerusalem against Jesus. What made them worse? What made them worse was simply this, indifference. Indifference. Wasn't this sin of violence, it wasn't the sin of sensuality, it was the sin of indifference. 
They're entertained with Christ. That's about stops there. They have a self-satisfied, kind of complacent heart set. And on the outside, people like that generally look respectable. You look at people like that and go, boy, they're such a nice guy. But hell will be hotter for them than for the Sodomites. That's what the Bible says. That's hard for us to perceive. But that's what Scripture says. So I ask you this morning, are you just on the sidelines? Are you unwilling to play no matter what the game is? Are you just sitting there with your hands folded, critical spirit, saying, you know what, I've heard enough, I don't want to hear anymore. Or maybe you're being exposed to the truth of God and you're just indifferent. You just, yeah, whatever, if it works for you, fine, but I'm just not there. I don't know where you're at, but this is a very, very serious time. One day people are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Some people are going to say, you know what? I never did anything. Other people are going to say, look at all I did. And you know what? That's going to be their condemnation. We need to cry out to God today for his grace, for his mercy. You ask God for a broken heart before him. You ask God to expose your sin, to show you just how wicked and vile you really are. Because we're all in that same boat together. The Bible says very clearly that none are righteous, no, not one. All have fallen short of God's glory. I pray that you would hear this truth today and act upon it as the Spirit of God leads you. Father, we thank you today for this message. We pray that we would not be like the people in Jesus' day, that we would be not like this critical, indifferent generation Lord, we're all surrounded by people every day who reject Christ. But Lord, we know that you died for them just like you died for us. And Father, we pray that you would move and work in their hearts. I pray that you would show them your love through your grace. I know there's folks here today who have heard the message, the truth of the gospel. And may even know it to be true. But it doesn't move them. Nothing happens. Lord, we pray that you would, through your spirit, impress upon their hearts a need to repent before you, to have a change of mind about who you are. That they would come to understand that God died for them in the body of Christ on the cross. And that even today they can repent, they can turn to you, they can cry out for forgiveness. They can cry out to say, God, you know what? Help me believe. Give me the faith that it takes to believe in your Son. And for us believers here today, I pray that we would never forget our duty our calling to share the message of the gospel with those who have yet to hear. To beg, to plead people to come to Christ. That's what we're called to do. Just because someone looks great on the outside doesn't mean that their heart is not black, darkened with sin. And so, Father, I pray that we would see the world through your eyes. That we would see those who are lost and hopeless in need of a Savior. 
we would own up to our responsibility and our ministry and our calling to reach out to them and to touch them with the message of the gospel and to show them through our lives how you've changed us and that you would make it real to them that they could put their faith, their trust in the living Lord who's no longer in the grave but has risen victorious over sin and death. We thank you and we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.